Amen. Oh, man, I love, I love the sentiment of those songs uh, this morning. Well, it has been uh, uh, a lengthy study. We began studying Ephesians when uh, we shut down, and uh, it's been an interesting uh, several months, and we are winding this whole thing down. I wish we were winding the whole thing down, but we're winding the sermon series down anyway, uh, this week and next week, and we will finish the book of Ephesians. So let me give you just a little bit of uh, kind of context for the next little bit going forward. We are going to spend three weeks uh, where each campus is going to uh, do something that's separate, distinct from each other. And as we uh, prepare to launch into our fall and into the next year to year and a half, after which, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be in a new building of our own in a permanent location here in Gloucester, uh, I have decided that we're going to take several messages from the book of Acts because uh, we have felt very temporary for two years, and it's very hard to, to feel like, man, we are really solidly here. And that day is coming, but I want to kind of give us a, a quick renew uh, as it comes to, as it, as it pertains to the early church, because you recall the early church had no building of their own. The early church was expansive and extensive when it came to the kingdom of God even though the only time they met together corporately for the most part early on was when they met at the temple. And uh, so we're going to spend three Sundays looking at some select passages from the book of Acts and uh, remember kind of the essence of what really makes us effective. It's not our building. It isn't having a temporary place here and, and getting a permanent structure uh, is not going to all of a sudden make us effective. It is the stuff that makes churches churches that's going to make us effective. So we're going to spend three weeks talking about that. And then uh, God has put it on Pastor Sean's heart that through the fall, actually leading almost to Thanksgiving, on through, the, through October anyway, we're going to study the book of Philippians. Because as Pastor Sean put it, I just think our people need to remember we can have joy even in difficult circumstances. So we're going to study a letter of Paul written that talks a lot about joy and uh, it was written from prison. So I know some, some people feel like they're stuck in prison. It's really just your house. Uh, but uh, we're, we're, uh, we're going to enjoy some good time in that. So that's kind of where we're headed uh, teaching-wise over these next months. Our small group ministry uh, is going to be gearing up as it, uh, in uh, coinciding with that series in Philippians. And so you'll be hearing more about that really soon. One other thing I forgot to mention in the announcements uh, we are going to be doing a backpack drive again, I am told, this fall, okay? And I'm only mentioning that. You'll see more about it, but I'm mentioning it because I think today's the end of the tax-free weekend, right? So if you are into the backpack drive thing and want to get out today and get some stuff without having to pay taxes on it, get out there this afternoon and get that done, and you'll hear more about it. It's going to be a kind of a drive-by drop-off thing, right, Chris, that we're going to, uh, so we're going to still do it, all right? Kids are still going to need some school supplies, even though they're working from home, and uh, so we're going to do our best to help and give some assistance, uh, especially to younger kids, right, mostly elementary-age children. So if you want to get out this afternoon, you got some time, want to start collecting some supplies, that would be great. Okay, we're going to work our way uh, on through the rest. Actually, what I consider to be the rest of the passage that Pastor Nate talked about last week. And it really begins in Ephesians 5.21, which says we are to be submitting ourselves to one another. 
uh, in the Lord. And so that whole concept has to carry over into all of the stuff we've been talking about. Out of reverence for Christ, we are to submit to one another. And then Paul, having made that statement in Ephesians 5.21, gives three specific relationships in which this principle of submission becomes really important. And they were situations that were speaking into relationships that were very different than we know them today. Marriages were very different. Pastor Nate did a great job on this passage from of, about husbands and wives last week and pointed out uh, that in the first century, wives were treated like property. They were not considered to be equal partners uh, equal in the sight of God or anything else. And so what Paul wrote uh, about wives submitting to their husbands was an outworking of submission to Christ because many of them were in relationships that were difficult. Many of them were in relationships that were stressful. And Paul is saying you can still honor Christ in submission in a difficult situation like that. But husbands, and then he spends much more time talking to husbands about how they should treat their wives because they didn't treat them that way in the New Testament. And uh, I hope that we have just culturally learned a little more about that since the first century, but still uh, it is vitally important that we remember the standard for husbands is way higher than we commonly want to say, uh, or at least want to admit to ourselves, that we must love our wives in the same way Christ loved the church, giving up our rights for the sake of our wife's spiritual well-being is, is almost unknown. It certainly was in the first century, so that's a real challenge. So now these next two, we're going to cover them both, the relationship of parents and children and the relationship of what we'll call, for the sake of argument today, employers and employees, because it's the only context we're uh, familiar with, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Again, this is all working out the submission thing. How do we honor Christ? How do we submit in relationships where it may be difficult for us. It may be difficult because the person to whom we must submit ourselves is not acting godly. It's possible that we have that. Or it may be that we're in a position where we are the responsible party for the authority uh, piece, and we must learn how to treat those who are required to submit to us in a manner that pleases God, that honors their image of God and their worth as a person, and yet still somehow be in charge. So those things are difficult, right? It's hard to put that together. And so we're, we're studying a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it seems like it was written just a month or two back because it seems so relevant to me. So anyway, we're going to work on that. How do we have enough humility and maintain an attitude of submission even in these sometimes difficult circumstances of daily life. So it starts with parents and children. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's the promise. It's quoting from the Old Testament. It, this is vitally important, right? And it's, man, our culture has a very different attitude about the obedience of children. We view, we have allowed the idea that if someone is to submit to someone else, it makes them less important. That is not 
how the scriptures view it. And again, Pastor Nate talked about that last week in relation to husbands and wives. It's, it's wives who are to view themselves as second in command. So it's not, a, it's not a worth and value thing. It is simply saying, children, you need to obey. You need to listen to your parents with a view to doing what they have told you. And of course, we all know hearing and listening are two different things, and, and men usually get mostly in trouble for that, right? Because we, we, uh, we say, I heard what you said, but then we can't repeat it because we may have heard them talking, right, guys? But we didn't listen to what they were saying, so we really were not engaged, and that's the idea of this word. Children, obey your parents for two reasons. One, you're in the Lord. You claim to be in Christ. It, you have an obligation before God to honor the system God has put in place by obeying your parents. And it's simply right. It is simply right. Structure requires that somebody be in charge. And since parents have been around the globe a few more times than their kids, it simply makes sense. It's simply right that the parents be the ones in charge, that they be the ones to whom someone else should give obedience. So obedience, and I have done nothing with the outline, have I? This is talking about home life first, I'm sorry. And children are to obey and honor. So in case you're following along on your app, that's what all those things are. But I think they may be filled in for you anyway. So second, so obey. Children are to obey, and secondly, they're to honor. Consider your parents to be of worth. We have a very different idea of that in our culture. And I think every child, to some degree, comes to the point in transition between a, uh, childhood and adulthood where they, they're struggling with the reality that I'm becoming an adult and at some point in time I'll no longer be responsible to actually do what my parents tell me. And that process of transition can be very stressful. We call it adolescence in America. That's a very American thing uh, to have adolescence, or it kind of began here, where we have protracted this idea, extended it out from when a person is a child to when they're actually an adult, and we've stretched it out for years. And it, it was never that way. Uh, in, in earlier cultures, you were a child until you got to a certain age, and then you became an adult, and you began to be really responsible really quickly. And we don't let that happen as quickly as we probably should, which, again, maybe that has to do with our parenting technique. But uh, I've had friends, honestly, I have a friend, well, he's in heaven now, long ago, but uh, he told me years back when his boys hit I think it was 12, maybe 13 years of age. He, up until that point, gave them some money that they could use to take care of. But he, they hit a certain age, and he said, you're not getting anything else from me until I die. <laughs> if you want money, go get a paper route. And they were responsible to go earn their own money from a young age, or what would be considered a young age now. And interestingly, all three of his sons are very... Uh, successful businessmen now. They learned early on how to work and to work hard. You know, and we can, we can look at our culture and bemoan the fact, oh, when everybody lived on a farm, kids really knew how to work. Listen, it, we live in a different world. I get that. But we have to learn how to teach our children to become adults, I think, more quickly than we do. Perhaps, 
this struggle to honor wouldn't, wouldn't be so hard if we would more quickly. And again, I have, I have four children. Only one of them still lives under my roof, under my care, under my protection. The other three uh, are all adults responsible for themselves, and uh, they're doing their thing. And, and uh, somebody, I think it was Pastor Nate, said, maybe you should do a parenting seminar. And I don't, I don't know that you should do a parenting seminar until your kids are grown and raising their own kids to find out whether your job was effective or not, right? It's really an interesting process because really what we have is the scriptural admonition. So children are to obey and to honor. Now the honor one, when does that go away? I don't think it does. I don't think the honor part goes away. I think we always are responsible to honor, which means we consider them to be of worth we treat them with respect. What was God's attitude? I want, I want to read it for you because it sounds so harsh to our current culture, but I want us to know how important God thinks it is that we honor our parents. Back in the Old Testament, chapter 21 of Deuteronomy. Do I have it up? Oh, I do. Good. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. And though they discipline him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the city, or at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. I'm not recommending that we go back to this. I'm simply saying this was God's attitude toward parents and children. Par children were obliged to honor the teaching and training of their parents. This has been changing in our culture for a long time. The first church where I was uh, after I, well, not the first church, but early on in my ministry as a pastor, we got to a situation where we were dealing with an, an issue in a youth group in our church. And uh, we were having a discussion among the leadership of the church about how we should handle certain situations and young people that were coming that we didn't really, you know, we we're struggling with their lifestyle and this and that and the other thing. And one of the guys made a statement that struck me at the moment, and I don't usually respond quickly to things, but in this instance I did. Maybe I do more, I guess, nowadays than I used to. But he said, kids are different today. You can't treat them the way we used to. You can't discipline them the way we used to. And I said, you have that totally backwards. I said, it is not that kids are different so we can't do that. It's kids are different today because we don't do that. Now, I don't mean this. I don't mean we should stone them if they're rebellious and become a drunkard, although it certainly would help anyone concerned about population control. But <laughs> uh, my point is this. Obedience and honor are really important to God. And for, for kids, for children, it is important that we do this. And the honor part doesn't change. We ought always to respect and honor. We should always treat them. Why? Well, first of all, 
very pragmatically speaking, it goes better with you when you do. It certainly did in my household anyway. It went better for me if I obeyed. I, don't, I presume it happened to you too. <laughs> it, it just goes better for you. That's a very practical statement. And it says that you may live long in the land. Now, we look at promises like that sometimes and we think, oh, see, I know somebody that was obedient and that he died young. This is not a blanket promise. If you're a good kid, you'll live longer. This is simply a general principle. Just as it is with all the principles of Scripture, generally speaking, if you will live a life that is consistent with what God has asked of us, the likelihood is you'll live a good, long, healthy life because you'll have a lifestyle that supports that. But So it's a, it's a general, practical thing. And then he gets to the part that was revolutionary for the day. In the first century... This thing about parents nurturing their children was revolutionary. So parents were to nourish their kids. Verse 4, here's, why, here's what it was like. Fathers had absolute power over their children. Children were not much more than slaves. He could actually even sell them as slaves. Remember the stories about those who were in debt and they sold their family into slavery to satisfy debts? A father could do that. He could make them work in his fields. He could punish them as he liked. He could even call for the death penalty. There was, in the first century, what was called child repudiation. When a child was born, they were brought and laid in front of the father. If he bent down and picked them up, that meant he accepted them. If he turned and walked away, he was saying they are not accepted, they are rejected. They were literally discarded, either left in the street to die or left in the street to be picked up by someone who would put them into slavery eventually. Fathers had that much power. Into that culture... Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What a dramatic difference. What, what, a, what a change the gospel would bring to parenting. And he says fathers here, I call it parents, because I think it says fathers for two reasons. The first is that culture. The first is the father was ultimately in charge of everything without fail in that culture. But secondly, because I believe fathers are responsible. Whether they want to be or not, whether they want to share the responsibility with their wives or not, that's great. Share the responsibility. But God holds fathers responsible for what's going on in their home. So I think that's why Paul says fathers, but it's really about our parents. And it says, do not provoke your children to anger. There are a lot of ways we do that. In fact, when Paul said the same thing to the Colossians, he said, don't do that because it discourages them. What does it mean to exasperate or to provoke your kids to anger? I think there are a lot of ways we do it, and these are just, I've written a list of several of them. I think, and, and they're all extremes of good things, okay? I think smothering kids with rules exasperates them. They can't ever measure up. I have known personal situations where there were so many rules that a kid could never even remember what they all were. And if there wasn't a rule about the thing, when they did the thing, there became a rule, it seemed. We can, we can overdo it with rules. 
we should learn that we can, to a certain degree, control our children's behavior until they get to a certain age, but ultimately, we cannot eventually control what they do. We can guide, but we can't control, especially once they're gone. And if our goal is to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord, we, that means we want them to learn to be disciplined by the Lord early on in life, to discipline themselves in such a way that they'll honor the Lord. Favoritism is another way. The whole story of Jacob and Esau is filled with that. Jacob, or I mean, Isaac loved Esau, and uh, Rebekah loved Jacob, and man, it just caused a mess for decades in that family. Favoritism, now let's be honest, some kids are easier than other kids. I get that, but that doesn't mean we should favor one over the other. I used to tell all my kids they were my favorite. In fact, I still do to a certain degree. But then when they were little, we'd walk down the hall in the, in the mall and I'd be holding their hands and I'd squeeze both hands and I would tell them, I'm squeezing the hand of the one that, I, that is my favorite. And of course, they eventually figured out I was squeezing everybody's hand, but so it wasn't as effective. But it, we do have to be careful of favoritism. Harsh treatment either verbal or certainly physical, harsh treatment, unreasonable expectations that they can never please us. Man, I can't tell you how many young people over the years I've talked to that are just like, it doesn't matter what I do, I can't make my dad happy. Little bits of praise and lots of criticism, always pointing out the negative exasperates, discourages, provokes our children to anger. Not letting them be kids. Uh, on the one hand, we've allowed adolescence to be extended, and childhood, it's like we're trying to compress that. Uh, I, <laughs> I haven't quoted a movie in a while because I felt guilty for a while I was doing too many. But anyway, here's one. Uh, the movie Hook with Robin Williams playing a grown-up Peter Pan. They're riding in a plane, and his son is goofing around with a baseball in the plane. And, and Robin Williams, whatever his name is, Peter, whatever, looks over at his son and says, stop acting like a child, which he was. And he looked at his dad, and he said, I, I am a child. And he said, well, grow up. Requiring our kids not to be children, learning to distinguish between rebellion and immaturity is really important and sometimes a fine line. And then, of course, conditional love makes it really, really bad. It's, it's just, it's easy to exasperate. So what should we do instead? We should nourish them to maturity. We, we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's like a plant that we're nurturing while it is small so that it can be strong enough to stand on its own. We, we want our children to grow up to be, to be able to think for themselves, to be independent, to be able to make good, strong choices. The problem is we really don't want them to do that until they leave home, right? We, we, want, we want them to do that after we're done making the choices for them. And that's where that rub comes in. We are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition. That means we are to instruct them. We are responsible as parents to be instructing our children. I am grateful for our children's ministry. I'm grateful for Janelle and for her team, which includes some of you, 
that instruct our children in the things of the Lord on the Lord's Day. But that's not where they should get most of their instruction. They should get it from their parents. We are responsible to bring them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord, which means I show them what it means to be godly. I live a life in front of them that shows them how to be spiritually disciplined in my walk with God. So that's home life. The second is uh, bond servants and masters which I'm going to describe as employees and employers largely because it's difficult for us to have uh, a handle on the rest of that. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But this is our work life. This is how we function in our life outside of our home. And he talks first about servants or employees. Now, let me, let me quickly address the servant thing. Probably half of the Roman Empire at the time of this writing was enslaved to the other half. There were slaves everywhere. It was such a part of the culture that you could almost not avoid it. I want to make sure we understand Paul is not discussing slavery here. He's not discussing whether there should be slaves or shouldn't be slaves, whether it's right to own a slave or not own a slave, whether it's a right to try and get out of slavery or not. He's not discussing slavery. He is addressing people who are in a given situation to talk to them about how they can function in a godly fashion in the midst of difficulty and trial, right? Some people get all upset. Paul should have just called out slavery and said it was wrong and told everybody to let their, let their slave go and all. It's like we want to cancel the Apostle Paul, right? Because he didn't say everything the way we think he should have said it. He's not discussing slavery. He's discussing relationships. If I am a slave, how am I to function? Surely it would be better not to have slavery. Surely it would be better if I wasn't a slave. But how should I function if I am? And probably most of the people in the church reading this letter would have been slaves, right? These, the, the church was has always been attractive to people who had no resource on their own, who, who were at the end of themselves. The gospel is, it's, it's an easy understanding for somebody who already knows, I don't have my own resources. A lot of people in the church uh, in the first century would probably have been slaves. There were some that were slave owners. There were some that were uh, masters, some who had a lot of money and were not slaves to anyone. They were not servants, but Nevertheless, to those who are, how should I function? How can I carry out the submit to one another in, out of reverence for Christ if I'm a servant? First, it's obedience. Let me read it for you. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them. Stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Bondservants, those who are servants. So, applying it to employees today. I work for someone else. I have my income. I support my family. I'm able to live. 
because I have a job from another person. They have offered me work, and I'm doing it. How should I function? What is my manner to be? Obedience. It's the same word that Paul just used for children. Listen to your boss. Listen to the person who is functionally your master, who gives you the ability to live because of your income. Make sure that you listen with an, uh, a view toward doing what they say. With fear and trembling... That doesn't mean we should be afraid of them. It means that we should have respect for their position. Now, again, think this through. If you're a slave, you're owned. If you're a slave, you're in a very, very precarious situation. You are property. You're not your own person, just like wives, just like children in many cases in the first century. So, Is the gospel transforming this institution of slavery? It certainly is, because it's telling slaves, how do you function differently than an unbelieving servant? You do it by being obedient, by giving respect, recognizing that your true master is Christ. So I obey with the same attitude as I would toward Christ. Just as in the earlier passage, Paul said to husbands, you're to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now he says to the slave, to the employee, you should respect, have the same attitude you would as if you were an employee of Jesus. With sincerity, a sincere heart from a Latin word that means without wax. Probably you've heard the illustration of pottery in the early days uh, in the first century Uh, They would make pottery, and sometimes as the pottery dried, it would crack. And an unscrupulous potter would take some wax and glue the pieces back together, smooth it all down, and paint the whole thing. And you'd never know unless you held it up to the light, and you could see the lines of wax in the piece of pottery. Sincerity means without wax. It means it's actually genuine. It doesn't just appear to be good. It's actually good. So you do that with a heart that is like that, determined to obey is an expression of my commitment to the Lord. Faithful service, not, not as with eye service, not just when I'm being watched. Boy, wouldn't that revolutionize the business world if all employees were as diligent when the boss was around or when he wasn't around as when he was watching, knowing that it is God who was watching I'm a bondservant of Christ. I'm doing the will of God as I do my work. So I do it from the heart. That's loyalty, faithful service. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Working as though my heart and soul is in it as an employee. It's not always that easy, right? Because the boss is the one making the most money. I'm making, sometimes it feels like, just enough to subsist. And I'm the one getting everything done, right? I mean, all the, all the things we hear from employees. My difference is I do what I'm to do as though I were doing it for God himself. And then the difference, masters, do the same to them. This is where the gospel was so revolutionary 
again because masters had no responsibility to treat their slaves like people. Masters had no obligation in the first century to treat their slaves as though they were in the image of God. They were property. You could do with them what you wished to do. But masters, you're to do the same to them, to the slave. Employers do the same to the employee. What does that even mean? The master doesn't obey, does he? Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. How does a master do the same to them? I think he respects them. I think he treats them as though they are in the image of God and not property. I think a good, godly employer treats his people with dignity and honors them. I think he treats them with generosity it's part of that word, part of, part of the word back here when it talked about doing the will of God from the heart. There's, there's something in that word that talks about a generous heart, one that goes above and beyond the requirements. Of an employer should treat their employee the same way, with sincere generosity and with goodwill. And they should stop threatening, which, of course, they were threatening. They were masters. They were in charge. They owned these people, and they were threatening them with whatever punishment they wanted to. Stop threatening. Not, not just bad treatment, but the threat of bad treatment was considered wrong. Because ultimately, the master serves the same master that the slave does. A master, an employer, understands, if he's, if he's a follower of Christ, that he's working for God, just as that employee is working for God. And God does not show partiality. That's an interesting phrase that perhaps would have meant more to them, but it, it is a phrase that talks about lifting up of the face. It's kind of, kind of, if we would say, it's looking at a person to see who they are before you decide if you're going to treat them with respect or not. There is no partiality with God. So, honestly, what's the... What's the reality? There are a couple of thoughts I have that I want to give you. First, your relationship with Christ will inevitably impact your relationship with those you spend the most time with. You can't help it. It affects my marriage. It affects my relationship with my kids or my parents, as the case may be. It affects my relationship in my business world. It affects the relationships where I spend the most time. It can't help it. The gospel will do that. Secondly, a question. Do you view your relationship, whichever one it is, as an opportunity to demonstrate your submission to Christ? So as uh, I, I have the unique position at Coastal of being both in the position of employer and employee, <laughs> uh, I have people that I answer to and I have people who answer to me. In all of those cases, how do I view that relationship? How can I use that relationship as an opportunity to demonstrate my submission to Christ? How I treat those who answer to me, how I respond to those that I answer to reflects that. How does your relationship with those closest to you reflect on Christ? How does my relationship with Jody reflect on Jesus? How does my relationship with my kids, most of whom are not under my authority anymore, how does, that, how does that reflect on Christ? How does, do my relationships at Coastal reflect on Jesus? 
I think these are really important questions for us to ask because the gospel changes everything, including and perhaps most importantly, my closest relationships. That's why when Paul got to the end of the section on husbands and wives, he said, we're talking about Christ in the church here. This concept of submission says something. Relationships among believers ought to be different than the relationships among unbelievers. Christians ought to be the best employees around. Christians ought to be the people you can count on the most. Christians ought to be the best bosses to work for. Those who follow Christ ought to be, man, people ought to be clamoring to get in to where I work if I'm the boss. Christian marriages, Christian homes between parents and children. This stuff ought to be the best, not because, man, God will be happier with us if we're better at it. It simply means the gospel is really taking root and having its proper impact. It changes our relationships. So that's where we go. That's rubber meets the road stuff from Ephesians. Next week, we're going to finish the last section and we're going to talk about spiritual warfare uh, because we face it and we face it increasingly, I think. We're going to get some ideas about that next week. But uh, man, I hope... uh, I hope you get that uh, as I look at these things, I'm, I'm going home every week. You know, I went home after the sermon last week and said to my wife, I'm such an awful husband. I'm such a slouch. I mean, not, and she, of course, she was sweet and said, no, you're not. You're amazing. You know, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, my point is, I, I hope that we are taking the challenges. I hope you understand as I look at the scriptures, I'm constantly reviewing, thinking, how do I deal with my kids now that they're adults? How do I How do I deal with them when they're doing things that I think they should not be doing or making decisions that I think are not wise decisions? When do I step in? When do I not? And they're dealing with the same thing. These are constant things. The gospel is constantly transforming us, right? So it's really important. Listen, I really, really thought that uh, this sermon was going to go really short. (laughs) And turns out, I think we're past time, aren't we? But anyway... Uh, I got one minute, so I'm going to pray, and uh, Nate and Amy are going to come up here, and we're going to sing a little bit on our way out the door, okay? Thanks so much for being here. Father, we are grateful that the Scriptures give us practical handles, and we are all in this thing together. We're all in situations where we uh, have relationships that our part seems really hard to us. So I pray that you would Uh, By the power of your spirit, you would intervene in our lives and overtake. And Lord, help us to be submissive to you first, so that in all of these relationships, we will find ourselves, because of our first focus on you, having a better attitude and a better response in the relationships that we're in. Thank you that that, uh, the gospel makes a difference. And I pray that you would allow that to happen uh, even this week. Bless us as we go from this place, Lord, we ask.